0: I'm grateful that you're here, and uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 2. If you happen to forget your Bible, um, there is one in the PUREC in front of you, and I want to encourage you to open that up and follow along with us, especially if you're new, uh, and especially if you're not familiar with the Bible. You might be new to the Bible, then um, Romans, chapter 2, starting in verse 17, is uh, where we're going to be this morning. And as you turn there, Uh, would you pray with me? Father, you've heard us praise your name in song and in prayer, and you've seen us exalt your goodness in our fellowship with one another this morning. As I look across this room, think about all the, the stories that make up this faith family. Lord, there's one constant that in the midst of all of it, you're good and you're faithful and you don't fail your word, and you don't fail your people, and so God, we praise you for this. As we come to your word this morning for study, we need ears to hear, and we need hearts to receive. And God, I need your help to communicate this clearly and faithfully. Holy Spirit, help us in these moments as we come to this passage, seeking understanding, seeking new hearts, that we would be your men and women through and through. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, my formative years were spent in a town called Yukon, Oklahoma. Yukon, Oklahoma is the hometown of country music legend, Garth Brooks. We used to drive past his house. He wasn't living there at the time, but we would. his parents were still there. We would drive by, and that's where Garth Brooks lives. And then when his first album hit, our town went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs for Garth Brooks. And so I fancied myself a bit of a cowboy. What were my qualifications for being a cowboy? Well, I I was a boy, and I could identify a cow in a field, but that was about the extent of it. Living in an apartment didn't give me a lot of opportunities for ranch life or raising livestock. However, I did have one really nice pair of acid wash Wranglers. These were my western jeans, my cowboy jeans, because cowboys love acid wash denim. I don't know if you know that about cowboys, seems to be true. And so I had this one pair of jeans, I had one western shirt that went with them, and uh, that was the extent of my cowboyness. If someone were to ask me how do you know you're a cowboy? I would have said, well, I I can quote the lyrics to any country song that's popular on the radio right now. Once a week I wear my cowboy outfit to school. I carry big league chew in my back pocket. That's What's more country than that? I, I can't think of anything. But the truth was uh, I was what people call all hat no cattle. I I was cowboy ornamentation without the cowboy life. I was no cowboy at all. There's a lot of things in life where you can play pretend, you can dress up, you can look the part, but in reality we don't really fit the bill. This is inherently a spiritual question. How do you know if you are a child of God? I, I, I thought I was a cowboy. I was very wrong. Can a person think that they are a child of God and yet be wrong? Is it possible to possess some religious ornamentation and yet not truly be a child of God? Well, the Apostle Paul certainly believes so. And in fact, our passage today is written specifically to this kind of person, the person who is outwardly religious, the person whose religion is convincing to other people, even to themselves. But God isn't fooled. Even though they honor him with their lips, their hearts are far from him. This is a deep spiritual problem. It is a pretending that has eternal ramifications. Can you imagine, think with me about that type of person, what would a hypothetical conversation with that hypothetical person be like? What if you confronted that person and you said, listen, I say this out of love, I I know you look religious, you you hold yourself as a religious person, but your life reveals you are indeed far from God. How do you think they might respond? Probably not with gratitude and an open heart, but rather with defiance and anger. But if that person is going to know eternal life, they have to believe the hard truth about themselves and they have to believe the glorious truth about Jesus. And that's what Paul's working to accomplish here in chapter 2, going over into chapter 3 of Romans. He's trying to help the religious non-believer understand how religion as an ornament fails in creating righteousness, but how Christ, who gives a new heart, changes everything in the believer's life. Now, perhaps this is your first Sunday with us in a few weeks or longer. I want to make sure that you're up to speed on where we are in the book of Romans. last couple of weeks I've shown you this slide that's outlined this broad argument that Paul is making here in chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. In Paul's explanation of the gospel, this particular segment is one large argument in which Paul is describing the total sinfulness of all mankind. And so you might remember a few weeks ago, we were at the end of chapter one, where Paul speaks to the sinfulness of the non-religious non-believer. And then last week, we started in chapter two, where Paul turns his attention to the Jewish non-believer or the religious non-believer. And from chapter two all the way to chapter three, verse eight, where we go today, Paul is focused on that person who says, I, I have all these religious deeds and accomplishments, yet they have not trusted in Christ, therefore they're not righteous before God. This larger argument ends uh, in verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul reaches the conclusion of the matter. He concludes that all people are sinful, Jew and Gentile alike, not one of us is righteous before God. And as a student of the Bible, as you're reading through the book of Romans, you're in these first few chapters, you want to keep in mind Paul's concluding statement, the destination he's driving towards is chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law. That's his conclusion. He looks at Jewish people and Gentile people and everyone in between, he says no one's going to stand before God automatically righteous either because they live by their own moral code or the moral code of Moses. No one is righteous in their own right before God apart from Jesus Christ. And so last week we heard Paul describe the dangers of Christless religion. In this passage we're studying today, Paul continues to speak to that religious non-believer. And as his argument continues, he, he calls out the hypocritical life of the religious non-believer. Look, like they play the part of a God follower, but the reality is they are not saved. They are not following God. He does not know them. They do not truly know him. They are just as guilty before God as a person can be. And what that person needs and what you may need is the new heart that comes from faith in Christ. So that all pretending would cease, and we would know that we are truly children of God, so my purpose in preaching this passage is to show you the failure of religious ornaments to set us right with God, and to point you to the only way we can be made new from the inside out. and To do this, I want to show you three religious ornaments that fail to make a person righteous so we 're going to start reading in Romans chapter two, verse seventeen. And go all the way through chapter 3, verse 8. Follow along with me in your Bibles as I read. Paul says this. Now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law... And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say, you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his Uncircumcision be counted as circumcision. A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter that person's praise is not from people but from god so what advantage does the jew have or what is the benefit of circumcision considerable in every way first they were entrusted with the very words of god what then if if some were unfaithful will their unfaithfulness nullify god's faithfulness well absolutely not let god be true even though everyone is a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. So in this broad passage, Paul is taking sacred objects, religious ornaments, things that we, we would adorn ourselves with if we wanted to argue our own self-righteousness, And he is revealing their inability to make us right before God. In Paul's discussion with this imaginary objector, he takes aim at some of the most sacred identifiers in the life of a Jewish person. And I want to highlight three of those for you. The first ornament, religious ornament, that fails to make us righteous is possession of the law. Possession of the law does not make a person righteous. So once again, it's vital to remember that in this passage, in particular, Paul's using this literary technique where he is having an imaginary conversation with an imaginary objector. In this imaginary objector is a Jewish person. Paul identifies that person in verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, so that's who he's talking to, the religious non-believer here. And so in verse 17, he speaks with maximum force to the person who believes that merely possessing the law is going to make them right with God or it grants them favor with God. And so in, in, he, what he does is he rattles off 15 different characteristics in three groups of five to show how horrifically misguided this person is. I want you to see him in the passage here. The first five characteristics are found in verses 17 17 and 18. And he says, now, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve of the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, those five things are really impressive spiritual markers. But he doesn't stop there. He gives five more identifiers, starting in verse 19. He says, And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. If we were to stop right there just with this list, we are looking at an impressive person. Someone who might be a spiritual giant among us. If if we were hiring a pastor, this might be on the, the description of the type of pastor we're looking for. If we're looking to partner with a new missionary, this is the kind of character we would want in a missionary that our church would support and pray for and celebrate. These are noble, honorable characteristics of a good person. But Paul shows us here how it's possible for a person to check every one of these boxes and yet be utterly guilty before God. Look at the next set of characteristics starting in verse 21. He says, You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So this person, this religious non-believer, relies on the law, knows the law, teaches the law, and yet lives in blasphemous hypocrisy. Their way of life is so horrifically sinful that in verse 24, Paul quotes from Ezekiel 36, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, the problem is not simply hypocrisy. That is a problem, but that's not the simple problem here that Paul's getting at. Paul's argument is not just about the horrors of hypocrisy. His argument is about the complete failure of Christless religion to save a person. We've got to keep in mind his conclusion. Where where is he going with this argument? Chapter 3, verse 20, no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law. So those who are privileged enough to have the law of God and to hear the law of God are not automatically safe. They are not righteous. It is impossible apart from faith in Christ. They are just as sinful as anyone Paul might have been speaking about at the end of chapter 1. And you know how judgmental Christians love the end of Romans chapter 1. And Paul's point here is no matter how many fingers you point at that sinful group, no matter how much judgment you cast on that type of person, you do the same things. You are guilty of sin before God. God does not show favorites and you will face the same judgment without the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Entirely possible to be a law possessor and a law breaker at the same time. Jesus said the very same thing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Do you remember these words from Jesus? He spoke of the day of judgment this way. He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. They're lawbreakers. A lot of times we might read these verses and and we think, well, maybe salvation is just a, a toss of the coin and I can't really know if I'm saved. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not creating doubt. He's creating certainty by showing us that we cannot keep the law in order to affect our salvation or produce the salvation that we require. We have to rely on Him exclusively and alone. Possessing the law does not change our law-breaking ways. So what a disaster it is to be a law possessor and remain a lawbreaker, and that's what every person is apart from faith in Christ. Just as we discussed last Sunday, it's entirely possible to be religious and yet without Christ. It's possible to be spiritual and moral and decent and honorable and possess the praises of people and yet meet with the judgment of God because Christ is not your Savior. And in light of what Paul has said right here in chapter 2, it's possible to love the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to have our theology settled on the Word of God, and yet not know the Son of God. That's where our eternities hinge. Without Christ, we are lawbreakers condemned before God. Now, you may not like Paul's tone. You may not like his choice of words. He can be a bit harsh. And you might think, I just it would be better if, if I heard something kinder or gentler, something different from Jesus. Let me read to you the words of Jesus on this very same point to the religious non-believer in Matthew chapter 23, here's what Jesus has to say. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to make one convert and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, blind fools. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, snakes, brood of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? Jesus is gentle and lowly in the application of his compassion. But Jesus is terrifying and final in the application of his judgment. But do not let the hard words of Jesus or the hard words of Paul confuse you because this is grace. It is indeed amazing grace that God would take the hardened sinner by the ears and shake them into repentance, awaken them by whatever means necessary to show them the utter failure of man-made religion and religious ornamentation to save them and to say, I love you enough to wake you up from your self-righteous condemnation. This is the grace of God on full display in Romans chapter 2. We have to know this, that possession of the law does not make a person automatically righteous. Possessing an outward ornamentation of religion does not mean I stand proper before God. Apart from Jesus Christ, we face a terrifying judgment. And Christ in His love speaks to us through His servant Paul. And throughout all the scriptures to make sure that we do not settle for this false type of religion. Paul doesn't stop there. I mean, he's, he makes the reader squirm when he points out possession of the law does not make a person righteous. And then second, he's going to say this, covenant symbols do not make a person righteous. Covenant symbols do not make a person automatically righteous. So Paul now turns his attention to one of the most sacred symbols in Judaism, and that's circumcision. And I want you to look at what he said in verse 25. He said this, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you're a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, it's hard to overstate the importance of circumcision in Jewish life. It was the defining covenant mark. It was as important to them as baptism is to us. And just as many people assume that they are right with God because of their baptism, so it was for those who were circumcised. The assumption was that they were righteous before God because of the mark on their flesh. And so Paul states that circumcision only benefits a person's righteousness if they observe the law. But when they disobey the law, when they disobey God's law, then their circumcision benefits them none. They can't stand before God in judgment and say, but but I have the covenant symbol. Yeah, I lived a wicked and depraved life, but but my flesh has been marked. That ought to count for something. Paul says it, it only counts towards your condemnation. It's as if that person never cut their flesh. Paul goes on to say, verse 26, that the Gentile who obeys the law is more Jewish than the Jew who disobeys the law. To the original hearer, it, it would have been just almost an outlandish statement, but Paul is driving home the point that these outward religious ornamentations do not make us righteous before God. And we keep in mind Paul's destination the whole time. No one's going to be justified by works of the law. I've cut my flesh. That's fine. You're not justified that way. You're justified only by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Paul, as he unpacks this argument, he's helping us see what the true problem is with mankind. What's what's the problem that every one of us possesses? Look at verse 28. Verse 28. He says, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So what's the problem that we all have, religious, non-religious alike? Our problem is we have these wicked, corrupt hearts. The solution for that is not taking the covenant mark or any other sort of outward thing. It is instead a transformation that happens from the inside out and comes only through faith in Christ. That's the the problem for every one of us. And so it doesn't matter what your flesh looks like. It doesn't matter that you possess the law. What matters is your heart before God. Because while these outward things may convince other people of our righteousness, God knows our hearts through and through. And where does Paul come up with this stuff? Where does he come up with this idea that circumcision is of the heart? Well, he comes up with that from the very word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Jeremiah chapter 4 says the exact same thing. That what God's after is not people with changed flesh. He's after people with new hearts who are transformed from the inside out. God's people have always been marked by faith-filled commitments to God and not merely by external rights. And it's hard for us as religious people to wrap our minds around. Have you seen this story that's been in the news this past week about a priest in Phoenix who resigned because he was found to be performing baptisms incorrectly? When he baptized, he would say this. He would say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's wrong. Saying we baptize is incorrect. The Vatican instructs priests to say, I baptize. When when he said, we baptize, he's invoking the audience that's with him, and that's improper. When he says, I baptize, he's invoking the authority of the priesthood, therefore the church, therefore God himself. That's what makes a baptism valid. For 20 years, he's been baptizing this way. Thousands of baptisms are invalid because of his change in wording. Thousands of people will have to be rebaptized in order to be truly saved according to Catholic doctrine. What if we take that story and we lay it right here next to Romans chapter 2? Hasn't Paul shown us that external rights do not carry saving power? A lawbreaker who gets baptized is still a lawbreaker. According to Paul's argument, the unbaptized law keeper is better off than the baptized lawbreaker. Whether you are Catholic or Protestant or none of the above, what we all need is a new heart that comes through true faith in Jesus Christ. Not an act in our infancy, not an act in our adulthood. We need new hearts that come through faith in Jesus Christ. In Psalm chapter 51, when David confessed his sin to God, do you remember what he asked God for? In Psalm 51.10, he said, create in me a new heart. He didn't pursue a, a, a more valid baptism. He said, God, my problem is my heart. I'm wicked from the inside out at the core of my being. God, I need a transformation that only you can give me. What good is it if you get baptized or you cut your flesh but your heart remains rotten? Paul first told us that though we possess the law, we're disobedient outwardly. And here he's just told us that even though we may possess a covenant symbol, we're disobedient inwardly. Outside and inside, apart from Christ, we are broken people true salvation is an inside-out transformation, not merely an outward ornamentation. Paul makes us squirm because he knows our souls are at stake. He knows how easy it is for us to just rattle off some religious resume in place of true faith. He's after your heart. He's after your soul. He loves you. And so Paul has told us that possessing the law neither possessing the law nor possessing covenant symbols are going to make us righteous automatically. Paul has one final argument to make, and that's twisted logic does not make a person righteous. Is there anything more sacred than our own assessment of ourselves? Anything more sacred than the sort of mental games we play to make ourselves right with God apart from faith in Christ? My autonomy is perhaps the most sacred thing I carry in our current cultural moment. Well, up to this point in the argument, Paul has been doing all the talking, and his imaginary objector has been really quiet, but now the imaginary objector speaks up here in chapter 3. And in verses 1 through 8, there's this back and forth between the objector and Paul. And it's challenging as the reader to identify Who is speaking where in these verses? Which one is Paul speaking and which one is the imaginary objector? Go home today and try to sort that out and and you'll find it's not so tidy who is speaking where. And so that's why when you're studying this part of Romans chapter 3... It's probably best to not try and look for some sort of artificial pattern, like here's a question, here's an answer, here's a question, here's an answer, but rather to approach these eight verses according to the themes that are present. And there are two major themes, one of them in verses 1 through 4, the other in verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 4 focus on the faithfulness of God, verses 5 through 8 focus on the fairness of God, or the other word that we could use there is the righteousness of God. And so the objector asks in verse 1, what advantage does the Jew have? Or what's the benefit of circumcision? Uh, the, the person is pushing back against Paul's arguments. Paul, you've just ripped our possession of the law away from us. You've told us our, our covenant symbol is practically worthless. What, what's the point then in being Jewish? Is there any benefit at all in this identity this religious identity and in these religious markers and and paul's answer is going to be yeah absolutely there is an advantage to being a jew and and the advantage comes in the form of god's faithfulness and god's fairness so the first benefit of being a jew is that god's entrusted jewish people with his law chapter 3 verse 2 he says it's considerable in every way First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. And then in verse 3, he says that even though some of them were unfaithful, God has remained faithful. Some of them have been sinful, for sure. But God has remained true to His word. He's going to keep His promises. And so it's a huge advantage that the Jewish person has been given the word of God and given the promises of God And though they've been unfaithful, God will be faithful to keep his promises. What a great advantage to have the word of God, to know the promises of the coming Messiah, to know of circumcision of the heart, to know that God rescues people by faith and always has. And God will be faithful to keep his promises of salvation. He will be faithful to keep his promises of judgment as well. Because unlike human beings, Paul points out in verse 4, God does not lie. The second benefit of being a Jew is knowing that God is indeed fair in His judgments. In verse 5, the imaginary objector poses a, a ridiculous hypothetical question. So put on your imagination cap for just a moment and imagine a scene where a judge sits on a bench And the judge wants the people in the court to consider him righteous. And and so for that to happen, the judge has to punish the sinner who appears in his court. So imagine a liar appears in the court before the righteous judge. If the judge calls the liar a sinner, then the judge speaks the truth and has demonstrated his righteousness. So in that case, the sin of the liar has highlighted the righteousness of the judge. So the objector is claiming that since he's an unrighteous person and a liar, he's actually helping demonstrate the righteousness of God. Hey, by my sin, by my lying, God is shown to be righteous. I'm benefiting the righteousness of God through my own sinful life. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. He doesn't even really address it. He just sort of swats away the argument with a couple of simple observations. First, he says if the objector were correct, then righteous judgment would be impossible. And then in verse 8, evil would become indistinguishable from good. Well, I've done a bad thing to accomplish a good thing. That doesn't make any sense at all in God's economy. So God's fairness in his judgment. Does not threaten the privileged place of Israel in salvation history. They're privileged to know the promise of the Messiah and to see those promises fulfilled in God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Now, one thing we may need to be careful of here in Romans is we must not take Paul to be characterizing Jewish people as fools or worse. He is personifying extreme ideas. He's not describing the character of a group of people. Paul loves Jewish people, his people. That's going to come into clearer focus as we read through the book of Romans. He states it unequivocally how he would give up his own salvation if it meant his people, the Jews, could be saved through faith in Christ. And so that means for us, we we have to be careful about our attitudes, our actions towards Jewish people. Those who follow Jesus will have the same loving posture as Jesus did, as Paul did towards Jewish people. Christian history is full of horrific expressions of anti-Semitism based on wretched ideas. Martin Luther has done much to benefit our understanding of the Word of God, but He was a passionate and well-documented anti-Semite. And so we must be cautious in the way we approach passages like this, that that we understand these to be words of love, not words that would justify any sort of unloving behaviors or attitudes towards God's chosen people. when we read these words with this imaginary objector, when Paul points out the twisted logic or when he talks about the failure of these religious ornaments, what he's doing ultimately is highlighting the mental games that, that all of us play. This is not just about the failure of Jewish people. This is about the failure of all of us. I'm numbered among them. You're numbered among them. We are those who use twisted logic to try and arrive at these weird places to try and make ourselves right before God. And so, apart from faith in Christ, there's just no way to argue our way into the kingdom of God. No amount of philosophizing, no amount of deal-making changes God's position. No self-assessment woos God my way. God's faithful, faithful to His promise to save, faithful to His promise to judge. Our twisted logic is not going to make us righteous. So, man, Paul has come in hot today, and and he's held up three different religious ornaments and shown us their flaws. Possession of the law does not make you righteous. Covenant symbols don't make a person righteous. Our own twisted logic cannot make a person righteous. To put it another way, our external life is broken. Our internal life is broken. Our thought life is broken. There's nothing we can do on our own to fix those things. And so when all those externals are exposed, where do we turn? If church attendance or baptism or communion, if all of these things fail to give us a righteous standing before God, where do we turn? Well, we turn to God who is faithful to His promises and through faith in Christ will give us a new heart. This was Paul's testimony, wasn't it? I mean, if anyone had the ornamentals down, it was Paul. He said so. Listen to Paul's own testimony from Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He said, If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless." Everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul has it all externally, inwardly, utterly broken, completely guilty and condemned before God until he met Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you read this passage, what do you do with this? Here's what you could do. You could just say, that's right, Paul, go get them. You, you tell them what's up. Yeah, listen up, you sinners. Listen up, all you phonies, you hypocrites. Listen to what Paul has to say. Oh, you're going to get it, and you've got it coming. Aha, go get him, Paul. We're assuming we're on Paul's team. We could respond that way. But here's what we ought to do, brothers and sisters. We ought to use this passage like it is a spiritual MRI machine, and we need to put our hearts under examination. Examine your heart. Examine the way you use your external righteousness to try and argue your case before God, even still today. I'm not saying that you need to doubt your salvation. What I'm saying is that even as saved people, we may drift towards this external righteousness in order to make our case before God when that's not how we were saved in the first place. It's time to examine our hearts. I don't want to presume upon the grace of Jesus Christ I I want to take that grace and strive with everything in me to honor Him in the life I live inside and out. I want to be the kind of person who, who, who walks with God in integrity and sincerity in the inner person of my being, in my private places, in my dark places, as much as I do externally with my church family. In Psalm chapter 24, the psalmist asked this question, he he said, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? And he answers, it's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. You can't have clean hands without a pure heart. And and so I want to examine my heart today. Before my Monday starts, I want to get in a quiet place with the Word of God open and my mind and heart set to prayer, and I want God to examine me. Holy Spirit, press in, convict me of sin, show me where my self-righteousness is rampant, and remind me again of the simple, powerful, eternal reliance on Jesus Christ. I want to examine my heart this morning. When Paul says in verse 17, now you call yourself a Jew, I'm going to put my label there. Now you call yourself a Christian. Brothers and sisters, let's examine our hearts today. And what if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul's been speaking to you specifically. And look, here's the thing, almost everyone believes that God will do them well because of their externals. It's rare that you would meet a person who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't walk with God, who would say, I'm going to hell and I deserve it. Most of us will say, well, no, God ought to be good to me because of this reason and this reason and this reason. All the very reasons that Paul has just thrown out for consideration. It doesn't fix our broken lives. It doesn't fix our broken hearts to rely on our own twisted logic or these religious deeds apart from Jesus. Here's why Jesus is such a big deal He is God in the flesh. He's not just some great teacher or a good man. He was fully God, also fully man, and as such, He's the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sins. He's the only one who can die in your place, and that's what He did. He died on the cross in your place for your sin. Three days later, He rose from the dead. He did this because He loves you, and He wants to rescue you from the power of sin and this eternal judgment that stands waiting for you if you don't turn to Him. He loves you. He extends this promise to you that if you, like Paul, like anyone, will turn from your self-righteousness and your sin and make Christ the center of your life, if you will surrender your life to follow Him and trust in Him, oh, you'll be saved, you'll be forgiven, you'll be given a new heart, a new way to live, clean hands and a pure heart will be yours forever and ever. When we strip away the ornaments, strip away these useless externals, and let Christ capture our heart, our lives change. Put all of those things to the side, run after Christ, and then one day you'll close your eyes for the last time here, you will open them for the first time there, and you will stand before Him in judgment. And with a new heart and all your ornaments gone, Christ Himself will adorn you once and for all, with the crown of life. And that's the goal we were made for. That's the treasure our souls long for. Let's pray together. Father, we confess uh, our temptation to think that our religious resume, our religious deeds will earn your favor. That's that's the way so much of our lives work. love is conditional, relationships are conditional, and so we do good, others do us good in return, we just assume that's the way you're going to be, but you've shown us a different way, the gospel way. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who walk with you in the faith, that that you would help us as we examine our own hearts. Let us not be the hypocrites, let us not be a church full of people who live in judgment of Christless people, but rather let us be a people who walk in grace, pursue new hearts daily, who are transformed from the inside out, becoming more and more holy as you are holy. Lord, in humility and in awareness of our sin, let us examine ourselves today. Holy Spirit, help us in this endeavor because we need your light to shine on the darkness that we adore and to expose us that we might walk in holiness and repentance And God, I pray that you would bring new life to the friend in here who who is the person that Paul was speaking specifically to, the person who might say, I've got this religious deed in my favor, I've got this morality in my favor, but who at the end of the day, they stand condemned apart from Christ. Father, thank you for your word to them, your invitation to them, and today may their answer be yes. May they know Christ and find a new heart as they trust him from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name we pray.